Hi and welcome to the podcast, You're Having Tea with Alice. This week's episode is an experiment. I have been doing weekly tea salons uh, with my Patreon subscribers and as a result uh, I've been having a really lovely time. I, I was thinking of doing this week's one as a Q&A and answering those cues in real life uh, and then editing it together afterwards as a solo episode um, uh, so this is an experiment. If you don't hear this, you won't hear this. But if you're hearing it, then it worked or I think it'll work. Anyway, thank you everyone who supports me on Patreon, patreon.com slash Alice Fraser. If you listen to The Last Post, that is still happening monthly. Or if you listen to The Gargle, that is happening weekly. Both of those are an enormous amount of fun. I will also be at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival for uh, the 2021 Melbourne International Comedy Festival from the 2nd of April to the 18th of April. It was going to be the 5th to the 18th, but we've been given a few extra dates due to popular demand, which is exciting stuff. And then I'll also be in the Sydney Comedy Festival after that uh, and maybe a few dates in Perth. So keep an eye out on my Twitter and Instagram at alliterative, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E for those details. And uh, I'm going to hit start on the Zoom meeting. So I'm recording this at my end, not you, just my end, and I'm hoping to be able to edit it up to do a Tea with Alice solo Q&A episode. And if it doesn't work, I won't put it out. But um, So, Richard, have you got any questions? So my latest, uh, my latest perspective on getting back out on the road, I am in Australia, which means we are now uh, more or less allowed to perform in venues and the venues can be more or less full depending on what state you're in. Um, so I was at the Comedy Store last week, which is normally a 350-seater venue, and it was about 220 people were allowed in that space, um, which was a, a show. It felt like a real show. Um, it's very surreal feeling. And I did very well on the Tuesday, the Thursday, the Friday, and then I bombed on the Saturday. Um, <laughs> I don't know why. It's that odd, odd thing of being out of practice of like, I don't, I don't, I think I had my hair out. Maybe that was the difference. Maybe they just were not in the mood for me. Uh, anyway, uh, it was exciting to bomb again and be like, oh yeah, this feels dreadful. Um, but I'll be doing the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. I'll be doing two weeks of it. Um, and I think this kind of maybe is an example of how I feel, which is that normally my sister-in-law, my brother's wife, asks us on an Easter holiday around that time. And I say, no, I'm at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. And this year I said, yeah, sure, let's go on the family holiday because all it will take is like four people to catch COVID in Victoria for the borders to shut down and the whole thing to be off or for there to be a five-day lockdown or a seven-day lockdown or, a, you know, that's how Australia is dealing with this Um and it's, it's worked incredibly well, but it just means that making these plans uh, <laughs> doesn't feel like uh, sac worth sacrificing uh, a family holiday with my niece and my brand new nephew uh, in order to um, in order to do the comedy festival. And again, am I back in Australia? Really? Am I? What is? What's the point of doing a festival other than you know? sort of getting my legs back under me in terms of live work. How much live work do I want to be doing, given that I've just spent the last year supporting myself with podcasts? And that's been fun. Uh, if I'm going to be on the road, I would rather be on the road in England than in Australia. Um, 
but I have people here who like my work, so I, I, I feel complicated about the whole thing, really. Um, I feel sort of partly excited about doing live stand-up again and partly obliged to do it, partly worried about it. Maybe I've lost all of my skill, if I, if I ever had any skill. Um, yeah, I think I think it's it's I'm I'm going to do it, but I'm not I'm it's not going to be the most important thing in my life anymore. Um, Amy got a question. Uh, so I I went over for I think 2015 um, for Edinburgh, and then I ended up spending more and more time on each side of Edinburgh to the over the last um, five years until I was more based in London than I was in Australia and I was just coming back to Australia for the festivals. Uh, but I had just renewed my lease uh, for a year in London uh, in January um, and then all of this happened. So so I was sort of psychologically basing myself in London and now it's been uh, an, an adjustment coming back here mainly because I came back into lockdown so I don't feel like I'm back. I'm also not great at... Um, I'm not great at being like, hey, let's hang out with my friends. I tend to like bump into them in places and then we hang out and then I, I say, oh, let's catch up again, um, mainly because I feel a, 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 probably a fear of rejection or something. So I don't want to reach out and intrude on their lives and like, ah, I'm here. I would rather be like, oh, yeah, actually we do like each other, don't we? <laughs> um, uh, so it, it's been hard for me to feel like I'm really back here I've been in this sort of bubble of work and family, which has been lovely, but it's not very located. Um, so I lived with my family um, until I went to Cambridge uh, when I was 23 um, because I was looking after mum. And then I moved to Cambridge. I was there for that period of time and it was sort of justifiable to leave my family and to let, you know, let them organise carers and non-family help uh, because Cambridge was a big deal. And uh, then when I came back, I felt like I could live out of home because they'd already put in these arrangements. And then I moved back in uh, when my mum was diagnosed with cancer. Uh, and then when she died, I moved to Melbourne. My brother went to Oxford and was living in the UK. And so when I went to London, he was already there. And so he and his wife and then eventually my niece, Lucy, were there with me. They were due to move back here for Linda to be near her family, they were due to move back here the day after I flew out last year in March. So I got the first year of, of my niece's life with them in London and the second year of her life here with them in Australia. So I've had this like immense privilege that is about to end. Uh, my brother's just got a postdoc in Queensland and there's no comedy scene in Queensland and, you know, it's that it's that very weird feeling of... How, how am I gonna how am I gonna handle not having Lucy once a week and uh, you know how am I gonna handle not being uh, close to my family in that way um, will I move back to the UK when things open up again will I stay in Sydney Why, like all of these questions are sort of really up in the air right now um, and at the same time you know I've got a tour booked in London uh, sorry in um, the north of, of England in November of this year and they'll probably have be vaccinated by then. But do I go? Do I stay? These are all... It's a difficult thing to be away from your family. And I think it's one of those things that we 
do really without thinking in the modern world because opportunities are so scattered and we follow those opportunities and it's important to um, actualize yourself. I'm I'm trying to write a, a pilot for Savage at the moment and one of the themes there is, you know, obviously looking after your mum uh, and what do your parents want of you because they simultaneously want you to be there with them and look after them or let them look after you. They, they want you to be there and they also want you to go and be yourself. That is the ultimate expression of their love of you is to let you be yourself and to let you fulfill yourself and and that's how they can love you is by letting you go in that way and those two things are I think equally important and impossible to reconcile it's 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 impossible to make that decision except by making it you know and and then either way it's the wrong decision or it's the right decision (laughs) It depends on on what you value and how much you value at any given time and how much you can kind of patch the thing that's missing. So at the moment, I can patch the thing that's missing, which is my career. I can patch that by doing podcasts and by staying up till two o'clock in the morning to record the gargle and by saying yes to every UK commitment, even if it means that I have to wake up at four o'clock in the morning after staying awake till 2am to do the gargle. Like I've, I've made that commitment to like try and keep my career alive remotely uh, and I get to have the family thing and then when I'm away will I be able to call them every day or you know what can I do to kind of patch that thing that I'm I'm missing I think that that's a really difficult calculation to make um but it's hard both ways I think uh Quinn have you got any questions for me Okay, so the question is, essentially, I have a family connection to intellectual property law. My father was uh, the head of the copyright... Well, he started and then ran the Copyright Agency Limited in Australia for 23 years. He was responsible for a lot of the lobbying and and the legislation that guides copyright law in Australia and then later in other countries. Um, So I grew up with these conversations over the dinner table. My dad uh, was obsessed with the idea of creating a registry for orphaned works, um, which uh, is what your question is about, or orphaned works, what what to do with them, uh, that so that people could access and pay some licence fee and then if they were ever, ever claimed by a copyright owner, then you would be able to, they would be able to take the benefit of their intellectual property. So orphaned works are works where there's no uh, acknowledged author or works in which no one is kind of where you can't access them. So I think there's a kind of a a lack of... uh, There's two different things that are happening here. One is a thing that I spoke about at the Copyright Symposium in 2018, which is that our generation or the younger generations have a different attitude to copyright uh, than older generations, which is um, we will make an effort to acquire something legally. And I'm speaking in a general sense here because, of course, I would never infringe copyright. Uh, myself in any circumstance, but but, uh, uh, we will make an effort to get something um, legally. And then if we can't due to, for example, geolocation stuff, uh, we will go through a piratical route. And as you say, with Nintendo games, there are some that are not being produced anymore. So you have to get them in a squiggly way and then Nintendo will sue you. So I, I think the the sort of felt ethics about this are shifting. I don't know if they should be. I don't know if we should be holding a kind of a pure morality about this and say, well, 
you know, if we can't get these things legally, then we should lobby to change the licensing law on this or we should. But I remember there was a website um, called HBO Let Me Pay You. Oh, HBO, please take my money in Australia because uh, we, I think this is about the time that Game of Thrones was first being released in Australia. We had no access to Game of Thrones. And so this enormous proportion of particularly millennials were pirating it um, in order to have access to this cultural phenomenon. But again, they they were willing to pay for it. There was just no route for them to pay for it. I think um, there will have to be some legislative solution. There'll have to be some way of of dealing with this. Um, Even if it's not... um, Even if it's sort of not making that kind of behaviour legal, even if it's just sort of uh, putting in warning systems that you are breaking the rules. Because I think people don't even feel like they're breaking the rules. If they make a good faith effort really to find it for money you know, and then they can't, I don't think our generation sees it as theft in any way to then take steps to acquire it uh, illegally. I don't know if they should see it as theft uh, because, again, the arguments against copyright infringement are a little weaker if you're not, if you wouldn't get it otherwise. If If there is no other way to get it otherwise, you're not necessarily devaluing it. So when people talk about copyright infringement as theft and then people mock them, well, it's not like stealing a car... Uh, it's like photocopying a car. It's like photocopying money. You are devaluing the currency. There is a there is a loss that is happening, um, and it, it might be a diffuse loss. It might not be so greatly felt, but it is it is a real thing. Um, so I, I don't have uh, I don't have answers. Just thoughts about it. I think it's a complicated issue. I think practically speaking, this is the way our generation behaves and that will either have to make that permissible or there will have to be international treaties that make things accessible in that way. Or, as my dad pushed for for so many years, there'll have to be a registry of orphaned works that people will be able to access and get things. Uh, and then if an author does emerge that wants to take claim over it, then they can do that later down the down the line. Um, uh, James, uh, do you have a question? All right, so this is a question at the moment. There is a a rape allegation happening in the Australian Parliament. Uh, Politician Christian Porter was accused of rape uh, in the 80s uh, of a 16-year-old girl when he was 17. In Australia, the age of consent is 16, um, uh, if that's relevant. Uh, But he was accused of rape by this woman who then withdrew the charge, asked the police not to press the charge, and then committed suicide. Um, but this allegation is public and so because there's no criminal charge, that it doesn't exist, there's this allegation hanging around in the air. Um, now, of course, everyone's talking about it. The Prime Minister of Australia has come out in defence of Christian Porter saying he believes him and that he thinks this woman was mentally ill and that she, you know, essentially maybe didn't make this up but had some delusion but he's also refusing to do an internal investigation in the name of, and this is what the right wing seems to be leaning on, in the name of natural justice. And if there's no criminal charge, then there's no charge and it should all just be sort of essentially he's been proven innocent by lack of a criminal charge. Uh, natural justice, yeah. In the in the Australian system, natural justice means, um, among other things, the right to a fair trial. 
course, we know uh, the reality. Uh, there's a, n- a number of things, um, you know, uh, the people who are on the on the left, let's say, I, I, again, very c- sort of clumsy terms for this, but the people who are kind of on the ladies' side are saying um, that well, they're saying that 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 you know that he should be suspended while an investigation it takes place. That there are plenty of times in which an in- sub criminal charge or a, a, a malfeasance should be investigated in ways that are not criminal, um, and they want him suspended while an investigation takes place. Now, on the other hand, the counter-argument, which is a reasonable counter-argument, is you can't just suspend everyone on an accusation. On the basis of an accusation, you'd shut down the government. People would just be bringing false claims all of the time in order to take out people that they didn't like. Um, but on the, also, at the same time, there's plenty of times in which uh, at which the criminal justice system falls short, particularly in sexual assault cases, particularly in rape cases, because in, in a, a criminal charge of that, um, severity, the standard of proof is beyond reasonable doubt. And if there are no witnesses, it's incredibly hard to meet that standard beyond reasonable doubt that there's a reasonable person would have no doubt in their mind. Um, that That's such a high standard of proof for something that is very difficult to prove. And then you also have this kind of, and again, this is going to sound mean, but you have this slightly more wishy-washy thing of, of re-traumatizing the victims by making them uh, relate the claim, which I think is a totally legitimate thing that does happen, but I don't think it doesn't happen with other crimes. Uh, I think it's sort of overemphasized in, in sexual assault cases and not, for example, in murder charges. If you're the witness to a murder, maybe it's not that nice for you to relive it or if you've been mutilated or, you know, any number of things are deeply traumatic to relate and the legal system fairly or unfairly demands that you be, bear witness or that you give your testimony. That's an unfortunate thing, but I, I don't think it I don't think it holds as much water as, as people think it does. Um I think the thing that really holds water is the fact that it's very difficult to meet this standard of proof. And so that means that there are instances and probably more often than not where sexual assault is not pursued by the police because the police will say, sorry, lady, it's not going to it's not going to happen. No court will convict on this evidence. You know, if you don't get a rape kit in time or, you know, if there's no DNA evidence or if it was, you know, some any number of things can mean that it's sort of. It's not necessarily malice on the part of the police to say there's no point in us pursuing this because they know the system and their job is to bring forward cases that have a chance of of being convicted. And at the same time, you know, it's a terrible thing if somebody is done harm and there is no recourse. I think there is an argument. I think Jermaine Greer got in trouble for making this argument, so maybe I shouldn't make it. There is an argument for treating rape as a non-criminal offence purely because if you treat it as a civil offence, not that it's less serious, but that the standard of proof is um, on the balance of probabilities. So you would end up with a a clearer route to a form of justice rather than just, well, you can't prove it, so sucked in. Uh, There's a a route of on the balance of probabilities. It seems quite likely that this man did this thing because we've got text messages and then you called your mum afterwards and then those kind of... um, uh, fact scenarios that tend to exist but not quite meet that standard of beyond reasonable doubt proof in the same way as, you know, OJ. Was he guilty on crim- on, on civil charges than he wasn't on, on criminal charges? Something like that. 
Um, but then, of course, then you'd have to sort of reframe the civil suit of rape. Or you could still call it a criminal thing but have a different standard of proof. There's all these different questions. Um, it's, it, I think that all of that is kind of washing around in the air in Australia at the moment of what is... What do you do when somebody makes a claim or makes an accusation? What There's not a clear path for victims and there's not a clear path for people who have been accused of these crimes either, um, which I think is sort of missing a lot from the right-wing discussion of, of this as well, which is that it's important to have an investigation if only to clean up this man's name. If you genuinely believe that he's innocent as he says he is, then an investigation can't smear his name any more than it is smeared. That said, maybe it can because we know that there are unreasonable factions on the left who will take an accusation as proof and who will see him as forever um, smeared by this no matter what happens. So, yeah, I think it's a really difficult thing. I think it's sort of astonishing that the parliament doesn't have a... um, clear path forward for this situation you know women have had the vote in australia for more than 100 years like we've been part of parliament since edith cowan we've you know this is a real you know a real problem that's clearly existed for a long time and the fact that we don't have an hr path for it uh, is ridiculous and sort of outrageous that's what i think about that uh, Gabe, what's your question? So uh, the question there is uh, sort of the grey tribe as inheritors of the rationalist. The grey tribe, um, so this is a thing, and I was talking about it a couple of episodes ago. Um, the grey tribe is, I, I talked about with Jackie Cation a little bit. Um, it's the word that is being used to describe the kind of Slate Star Codex um, sort of intersection with the intellectual dark web rationalist um people who can be pushed a little alt-right by their emphasis on rejecting the hysteria of the left um, and rejecting the kind of wishy-washy groupthink of the left, which I think is a legitimate thing to do. I think, it, you know, you look at the excesses of the left and you're like, well, I don't want to be part of that. But often I find that they get pushed very far um, into reacting to that. And I think what ends up happening, and this kind of goes back to my prior obsession, is like the emphasis that they put, the the amount of, the quantity of attention that they put on rebutting these uh, issues with the left ends up meaning proportionately what they are is reactive and right-wing. It sort of, it shifts the ground on, on and for people who are rational, they're choosing their ground badly. They're, they're making them, they're being guided by uh, a particular data set and they're choosing that data set badly. Uh, and then it shapes their whole view of the world um, rather than, for example, looking at the whole of the left and going, well, I would probably rather be on the side of the people who have a bit of compassion and not on the side of the Nazis. They don't think like that. They think, well, look at this insane cancel program that's happening against somebody who just said something slightly. They they absorb those stories and they sort of cherry pick those stories because those are the fun, interesting, exciting stories and they get this very skewed idea of the world. And also, as with everything, like, you know, 
that I was thinking about when I was watching this lecture on AI, like you end up getting um, you end up getting put into into a corner by what you're measuring and how you're measuring it. So, like for example, um, there's this current controversy in AI um, where they're doing uh, emotion measuring stuff on people in job interviews. So it's based on this AI that can read seven emotions. Um, and these micro expressions on your face. And there's so much that's wrong with that. Okay, starting with this idea that there are only seven emotions was um, debunked. It was a debunked theory from a guy in the 60s who decided that emotions were universal and went to like Papua New Guinea to try and find an untouched tribe to prove that they would recognize fear when they saw it kind of thing. Uh, (laughs) The seven emotions are Uh, like I can't even remember what they are, but they're mostly negative emotions, which is interesting. Uh, It's like fear, surprise, anger, happiness is one, neutral is one. Um, But It's sort of, anyway, so these AI things are being used now in big companies now to assess whether people are making these micro expressions and to guide the hiring process towards hiring people who have similar micro expressions to successful candidates of the past, which is another problem, right? Okay, first of all, the idea that this thing, because it's measurable, has to be relevant, that if you have the same feelings as someone who's come in before you and been successful, then you must be also like, what is that? Like, it's such a, it's such a weird premise, but because they, ha- again, you're sort of guided by the tool, you're guided by the data set, which may or may not be relevant, Secondly, one of the biggest problems with AI ongoing is is, is that um, you're replicating previous inequities. So if you happen to have hired, so one of the things that happened with Amazon was their recent AI um, hiring scandal was that they were hiring people who looked like successful candidates of the past, which happened to be 80% men, which meant that if you had the word woman on your CV anywhere, including like coached a woman's basketball team, you were immediately put to the bottom of the pile. Because this idea that because it's worked in the past or it's what has existed in the past, we guided being guided by that, which I think is a sort of one of those things where AI has just exaggerated a human tendency. One of the things I noticed when I was in a law firm was the way that people behaved was so restricted um, because they were looking at the people above them and the way that the people above them behaved as a guide for what successful behavior looked like. And then because observation is necessarily imperfect, you had this narrowing upside down pyramid of acceptable behavior because everyone was looking up, not seeing all of the scopes of possible behavior. But these were the successful ones that say there were 10 things that the people above them were allowed to do or 10 ways they were allowed to behave. And they only noticed seven of them. And then the people below them only noticed four of those. And like it just it was such a constrictive way of people behaving and that's, I think, people do that and because AI is built in a, a sort of a similar way, these are the things that are worth noticing, these are the things that are worth registering. It kind of ends up replicating um, that bad thing. Anyway, but yes, that's one of the thing, the problems with the grey tribe and their obsession with, like, rationality and data, which, you know, is a m- much better kind of thing to be obsessed with than a lot of other things, but to pretend it's unflawed is stupid. Um So the idea is that these people, these groups of usually men, the the new atheists and then the intellectual dark web and then uh, the grey men, the grey tribe, uh, all of these people, despite having these very rational and straightforward seeming principles, 
uh, have trended towards at least their fan base becoming increasingly radicalized, increasingly right wing, and and certainly, well, so this is the this is the thing that I, I think is it's, it is about attention, and they don't guard their attention. These people. So one of the principles that I think is a valid and a valuable principle is that it is worth entertaining and examining any idea, however repugnant. And they as they hold this as, as a high principle, that it's important to hold the, to look at these ideas. If you hear an idea, you give it you measure it on its own worth, on its own terms. Um, and because they hold this as a principle, this is a gut feeling, they, they pretend it's not, but it is a gut feeling that they have when they're told that they shouldn't examine an idea, that this is an upsetting an idea or a wrong idea, they are drawn to that idea. Their uh, reaction is to, well, I, maybe I will look at race science or uh, maybe actually women don't deserve the vote or be because they're being told that they can't or they shouldn't, they have this surge of righteous energy that they invest in giving credence to really unpleasant and upsetting ideas as a matter of principle because they're being told that they're not allowed. And um, that is a recipe for fucking disaster because, again, you are letting yourself, and for men who claim to be very rational, they are letting themselves be pushed into a corner by their own reactions and the amount of time and energy they spend then examining and giving credence to and giving weight to and, and really um, entertaining very bad ideas means that then those very bad ideas take up a larger and larger space in their minds. And they say, well, this part of it is wrong and this part of it is wrong, but what about this part of it actually? Maybe that does have some weight. And and. And so this is a terrible. This is the kind of where I have difficulty with them because I agree with the principle. I agree with the principle that there's no idea that is off limits. That there shouldn't be any toxic uh, area of discussion. That you know, but at the same time, some things are self-evident. Some things are common sense. And to find that distinction between our kind of uh, groupthink and common sense is very, very difficult to do. It's difficult to find that distinction and, and we can't necessarily trust ourselves to say, well, am, am I just repulsed by this because of, you know, felt rightness or am I repulsed by this because I don't want to fucking eat a baby? Like uh, this, I, and the analogy that I used in the Jackie Cation episode um, was of the pickup artist people. And because most people, and I think even most people in the Grey Tribe would acknowledge that that's a very flawed way of approaching women, but it has similarities with this Grey Tribe approach, which is that it's meant to be, or at least it claims to be, and internally it is data-driven. The assumption is young men want to fuck as many young women as possible, right? And that that is their functional purpose or goal, that that is a goal and it's a worthwhile goal. And this is the most efficient way to do that. You find their weakness and you play on their weakness and you cultivate their weakness until they have sex with you. Uh, the things that are not measurable, how you feel afterwards, how she feels afterwards, uh, become irrelevant to this numbers game of how many women you can trick into having sex with you. And you see 
the result of it is grotesque. These men feel fucking horrible about themselves. You know, they don't, it doesn't fulfill them. It doesn't make them happy. It, do, it makes them see the world as, as a, a, um, a field of victims and chumps and weaklings because that's all they're looking for. That's the data that they're pursuing. That's the seven emotions that they're looking to hit. They don't, they don't have a holistic view of it. And then also the fundamental common sense thing is completely out of the window, which is that if at any time in history you behaved like this, you would last a week before you were murdered. Like this is a non-function, this is a non-starting way of approaching the world. If you did this in a village, you would be killed by a cousin or a brother or a husband or a, a girl. Like it just doesn't work. Like it doesn't work. And it's so obvious that it doesn't work, except internally it makes absolute sense. And so I think that's a really good analogy when you're, if you are arguing with these grey tribe people, because again, I mostly like them when I encounter them in real life. They do have principles, they have ethics, they, they have intellectual curiosity and sometimes they have intellectual honesty, but they are blind to the places where it is grotesque in the way that the game is grotesque and so obviously flawed in the way that the game is so obviously flawed their insistence on on this kind of principle ends up skewing the proportion of their mind that they give to particular subjects and it is a deeply toxic practice i think it's been it's been always there and it's been exaggerated by the internet and by algorithms and by the kind of the idea that and this is something that's happened at all times in history since we thought men were being driven by little men in their heads by mechanics is that we are guided by the analogy of the most recent technology. They believe that the human mind is like a computer and that you can treat it like a computer, that you can feed certain information in and take certain information out and that it can compute in this way without being affected or distorted by the data that it is absorbing. And that is a lie. That's a lie. You are affected by, you know, your friends, the people you spend time with. We are so, so subject to influence. We are so vulnerable to, to everything around us that we have to guard our minds. And I know that makes me sound like really conservative and a bit like my dad, but your mind is such a delicate and precious thing that it matters what you entertain and what you bring into it, which is not to say that you need to avoid contentious subjects or not discuss them, but it's important to be careful when you're doing that. That's what I think. So I think that um, is the end of this experiment. I'm going to see if the magnificent Ben Wren can edit this into anything coherent. And if it works, then I will be able to go to sleep, which will be lovely. Uh, I think this worked as a way of doing this. I don't think I'll do it every time um, because I sort of do prefer to have more from you and not just ramble on myself. Um, this was a delight as always. I am, I'm very happy. I'm always very happy when I talk to you.
Oh, do you know her or do you not? This top is mistress that we have got. Elsie Thompson, it is her name, and she helps the doffers at every frame. Lousy rifle doll, lousy rifle day. On Monday morning, when she comes in, she hangs her coat on the highest pin. Turns around for to view her frames, crying, damn you, doffers, cry up your ends. Lousy rifle doll, lousy rifle day. And when the boss, he looks round the door, tie our ends up, doffers, he will roar. Well, tie our ends up, we surely do, for Elsie Thompson, but not for you. Lousy rifle doll, lousy rifle day. Oh, Elsie Thompson is going away, is it tomorrow or yet today? We'll tie our ends up and leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return again. Lousy rifle doll, lousy rifle